Hello and welcome to Drinking Matters. In this episode, Dr. Kuman examines the settings for drinking culture, the typology and topography of premises and facilities. When you first look into the sources and you're trying to find out what kinds of public houses we find actually in the landscape, then the impression is rather bewildering. There is an enormous range of terms, regional varieties, ephemeral as well as sort of rather imposing premises. So the first sort of uh, task really is to get an overview of what uh, is out there in terms of, of establishments and how perhaps we can categorize them. And if you look into the English sources, you find terms like victuallers, tapsters or hosts. In Germany, you would find Schenken, Krüge, Kretscham, Tavernen. In France, you can have Bainte, Auberge, Gabaret. So what do these terms mean? How can we perhaps compare premises uh, across different regional perspectives? So. Um, moving from that sort of rather wide range of, of, of uh, regional terms towards a categorization, what becomes apparent is that at the end of the day it often boils down to two major types of establishments. On the one hand, drinking houses, such as taverns, such as alehouses, such as mead establishments, which would specialize in a particular alcoholic drink and serve perhaps some cold snacks to go with that, but nothing very much in addition. Whereas the second main type is what I would call inns, which uh, encompasses a rather wider range of services, not only alcoholic drinks, but also accommodation, stabling, and the offer of banquets for larger groups of people, typically weddings or baptisms, something of that kind. What they have in common, I think, is an umbrella definition of the public house, and this is really the kinds of establishments that I've focused on in this study. These are the establishments where a particular individual regularly sells alcoholic drinks to members of the public for consumption on the premises. So this delineates uh, an inquiry or an object of inquiry which excludes certain types of comparable establishments, but what... Uh, I wanted to do was to have a clearly defined set of um, institutions to look at. So I'm concentrating on commercial establishments which um, actually sell alcohol. Uh, I concentrate on publicly accessible premises, so not clubs or restricted institutions. I am also uh, interested in permanent um, establishments, not just temporal outlets. So this is the sort of broad framework um, which I am concentrating on, but it doesn't mean that there are not other and indeed interesting establishments over and beyond this sort of umbrella uh, definition of public houses. We could drink of health spas, which often served uh, alcoholic drinks, but their main purpose was not sort of conviviality and um, the drinking of alcohol, but actually providing for the well-being and the recovery of patients. We have cook shops, which are very convenient and very practical premises, offering hot meals for takeaway or quick consumption on the premises, but very often they do not have alcoholic drinks to go with it. 
We have so-called dry pensions where people find a bed for the night but cannot actually have a drink with it. There are temporary catering stalls at fairs or in pilgrimage centres. All of these have certain characteristics they share with public houses but lack also, on the other hand, some of the key elements such as public accessibility, permanent establishment and commercial orientation. And this, I suppose, uh, has defined the um, range of establishments I was looking at in this book. It's fair to say that this kind of definition directs attention to the sort of formal and institutionalized context for drinking, which arguably predominated in the period because it was relatively rare for people to have both the facilities and the premises and indeed the alcoholic provisions to cater for large groups of people in their private uh, establishments. That may have been possible for members of the absolute elites, for clerical, um, professional people, maybe the nobility and the gentry, but the vast majority of early modern people found drinking particularly um, attractive and indeed possible only in formal establishments like public houses, which could do all the sort of economic and uh, social services that they themselves in their own often humble environments couldn't provide. So there is informal drinking, there is of course private sociability, but it's perhaps uh, tendentially biased towards the higher social groups. It has less evidence for historians to investigate it in similar detail. It is less publicly relevant because in your private premises you don't interact with other people or travelers or visitors in the same sort of way. So it is a more sort of perhaps sheltered, a more sort of uh, individual kind of exchange which lacks certain of uh, these aspects that uh, I was particularly interested in, namely their social and their public and political dimension. So without saying informal drinking didn't exist, um, it's perhaps fair to say that for some of these political and social approaches, the public house is more congenial as an object of inquiry. Now, these kinds of establishments that I've just tried to define were located in a wide variety of specific topographical settings. Some of them were more congenial and more lucrative than others, of course, and these include busy highways where lots of traffic was passing through, market squares where all sorts of people would come to exchange their economic um, production, uh, where they would try and meet other people. Bridges and town gates were nodal points of traffic infrastructure where many people often needed services either for themselves or for their carriages and their horses. Churches uh, where weekly worship at least takes place or pilgrimage centers where particular saints are venerated on occasions throughout the year. And none of this can happen without uh, establishments that actually put visitors up, establishments that allow them to eat and drink. So even you, if you have the most sort of religious types of environments without any sort of public house infrastructure, they couldn't engage in the religious life that they are trying to um, promote. If we look at it in a long-term perspective, we can probably say that uh, traffic and road infrastructure became ever more central for the location of public houses. Sometimes village centre inns actually had to physically transfer to a new road built, which may have been at some distance from the 
and village centres. So we can clearly see how establishments follow traffic and visitor volume and are not necessarily restricted to always the same types of environments. From about 1500 we can assume that the network was pretty comprehensive at least in Central Europe, less so on the periphery like Sicily and Scotland. But when you look at areas like the Holy Roman Empire, Germany, Switzerland, then within a number of miles you would always be able to find an inn so you could rely on this existing without having to organize your own type of accommodation. In terms of per capita provision, we are talking quite substantial figures here. In England, for instance, in the 18th century, figures suggest that we have one public house per 82 or 89 inhabitants in some areas, which is uh, substantial even by, by today's standards. On the continent, uh, where there are fewer uh, home uh, brewing uh, types of alehouses, the figures are slightly less um, prominent, but even so, in an urban environment, typically one public house per hundred inhabitants will be pretty standard, and in a rural context we talk about one per two to three hundred um, inhabitants. So again, certainly uh, figures that suggest that you could uh, expect such premises in literally every village and every hamlet even by the sort of early modern period. In long term sort of comparison when we look at the Middle Ages as compared to perhaps the 18th century, what dominated in the early period were the sort of larger rural inns and the sort of smaller urban taverns. So on the one hand, premises that were literally rooted to the ground in agricultural environments where farms simply had the right to put up strangers or then uh, rather small uh, wine uh, selling premises in uh, larger market towns and over time what we observe is a typological differentiation I think in terms of ever wider ranges of, of, of premises becoming available ever more consumer uh, needs being met with for instance in specializing um, in certain kinds of travelers, in specializing in certain types of social groups. What we find is specialized establishments for particular drinks, such as mead or then brandy, spirits, gin palaces. So in uh, line with the sort of increasing consumer choice that was available in the period, uh, public houses would follow and provide specialized infrastructure for um, consumption of these particular consumer goods. The premises and facilities that these places offered were of a very dazzling variety. We often think perhaps in terms of small-scale alehouses where literally just a living room is turned over for uh, the serving of, of alcohol to members of the public. But that's only one end of the market. The market also stretches to palatial building complexes in, in larger urban uh, environments leading inns in those sorts of areas could be uh, could be architectural trendsetters. They could pioneer the use of innovative, decorative, even mannerist features. After all, they had to attract customers, and that had to be done by features like um, startling signs, by decorations, state-of-the-art facilities, uh, comfortable creature. Um, comfort furnishings like stoves, carpets, curtains, etc. So I think what should be 
clear is that for every customer and every need, there was a sort of almost purpose-built environment ranging from the sort of uh, smaller scale wooden barn in a rural environment to a rather grand palatial architecturally rather differentiated complex that would serve the sort of um, top end of the market. The way these uh, public houses were built is often really as domestic dwellings simply with an additional commercial function added on. We find very few premises purpose-built for specific purposes in the early modern period. Very often we start with a normal dwelling house which then gradually became expanded and um, uh, made more uh, functionally differentiated with uh, increasing traffic that would come its way. Very often there were two types of arrangements for, for inns, that is premises that would also accommodate travellers and um, horses. On the one hand blockhouse type inns which would have everything literally under one roof. On the other hand courtyard um, premises where uh, different types of service buildings would be arranged around a central courtyard. Here the addition of galleries then allowed direct access to individual rooms, adding greater privacy uh, for travellers, meaning that people would no longer have to come through their rooms to uh, reach their own um, sleeping chambers, but could have access from a sort of gallery in the courtyard. Increasingly, functional differentiation stretched to games, um, meeting rooms, back lounges for more private dinings, dance halls, etc., etc. So by the 17th, 18th century, in a major urban environment, you would be able to take your pick and go to the type of uh, public house that would most suit your particular purposes. If we compare the two case studies of, of Bern and Bavaria, then we, on the one hand, notice many similarities, such as the basic division into two types, that is drinking houses and inns. We have major campaigns by both authorities to control the public house trade. We have, uh, in both settings, clearly um, a multifunctional need for these premises, be it in economic or in social or indeed religious life. But on the other hand, there are also differences that relate to their political and religious um, characteristics. In Bavaria, for instance, there were many church-related festivities, um, parish dedication days, uh, pilgrimage-related business. Uh, there were more uh, prominent noble influences on the trade because as a monarchy, the nobility played a lot larger larger role than it did in other uh, republican territories and on the simple basis of uh, food and drink provision Bavaria was a beer uh, region where beer houses predominated where wheat beer from the 16th century provided a new type of establishment where the whole uh, availability of wine was more restricted and also more expensive especially after the 16th century. In the Middle Ages, Bavaria had been a wine region, 
but then for climatic and political reasons, beer was pushed by the by the monarchs and the dukes and later on the electors of Bavaria. So wine became tendentially less important, beer ever more important. In Bern, on the other hand, as a reformed territory, the church always looked at the tavern with a great deal of suspicion. There were perhaps even greater tensions than there were in uh, Bavaria. Bern was a wine country producing very much its own um, local brands and beer is hardly visible at all in Bernese public houses right up to the end of the 18th century. It is a particularly communal environment as a republican framework. Villages and towns often ran their own taverns. They were often communally owned. They were often run by communal officers. So the social elites in these environments of Bernese villages and towns were much more embedded in the world of the tavern because they socialized there themselves. Whereas in Bavaria, perhaps the nobility kept a bit more of a distance because they had their own manor houses and, and, and palaces uh, to socialize. In Bern, also, there is an interesting cultural difference between the French-speaking and the German-speaking lands. The French-speaking lands were particularly active in wine production. We have uh, floods of informal uh, wine-selling establishments. It was an almost natural right of um, vintners to sell their own produce. You didn't need a license if you had your own wine. And so in wine-producing areas like the French-speaking Vaux, the density of establishments was even higher than in the German-speaking land. So once we enter into this sort of different agricultural context, we also get a different tavern culture, which is uh, must have been very visible for the visitors at the time as well. Dr. Kumin's book, Drinking Matters, Public Houses and Social Exchange in Early Modern Central Europe, is now available. This podcast was produced for the University of Warwick by Tom Abbott. The music was written and performed by Sean and Dylan Owen.